This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 17th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we get up close and personal with the gut bacteria of modern hunter-gatherers, visit the Southern Alps of New Zealand to test the speed limit on global weathering, and David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The human diet has changed drastically since hunter-gatherer times, and many argue that some modern diseases can be linked with this deviation from our past eating practices— in a news-focused story this week, Yap Devriza takes a trip to Tanzania to learn about the diet and gut microbes of a group that are still hunting and gathering their sustenance. Well, when I was doing research for my own uh, popular scientific book that I'm writing about the human microbiome, I uh, talked with Jeff Leach because he was one of the founders of the American Gut Project, a project that's sort of mapping the microbiome of thousands of uh, Americans and also some people from outside the U.S. And then he told me about this project in he was about to collect samples in Tanzania and uh, compare them with the American samples. And then I thought, well, I have to go there. So you actually had the opportunity to see this researcher, Jeff Leach, in action. Can you describe how he collects samples? First time I, I saw Jeff, he was standing on top of his Land Cruiser changing tires because he's driving around in this very rough area. Then he's driving from camp to camp of all these Hadza people living there in small groups of 10 to uh, 50 people. They're collecting samples, stool samples, hand samples to check the microbes on their hands and also a lot of environmental samples from the foods or the soil, the water, animals. They also collect some diet statistics. They were pretty uh, collaborative. They're pretty proud when you say to them that they are interesting. They really like that. And some of the people live by hunting and gathering from the land. No agriculture, no store-bought food. What is their diet actually like? Well, when I was there, it was dry season. 
There's not a lot of fruit, but there's a lot of meat because the animals are easy to hunt because they seek the water. So they bring in like some antelopes or kudus or some smaller animals and they split it up and they bring it to the other camps. And then there's some honey, there's tubers that the women dig out of the soil. And then there's some berries occasionally. And in the wet season, then it's totally different. There's less meat because of the animals, they can hide in the bush. They have a lot more honey. They really gorge on honey and of berries as well. So what's the most remarkable thing about this lifestyle, this diet from a microbial perspective? Yeah, well, one of the other foods that they also eat, I've got to mention, was is the baobab. That's a fruit from the baobab tree, which is a very spongy kind of dry stuff, but they put it in water and make it a, a porridge. It's very fibrous. In particular, the children eat a lot of it. They, all these small children have big bellies and they're not undernourished, but they seem to be fermenting a lot of fibers, and that seems to have a lot of impact on their microbes. There's no results yet, but that's what at least uh, Jeff Leach is thinking. That's really remarkable because it's like a lot more than we do. They eat more than 100 grams per day. Our regulatory offices uh, advise for our daily intake like 30 grams. An average American would eat less than 20 grams per day. Another thing was the social network of microbes. They're constantly passing on the microbes. And no hygienic measures, no showering or whatever, or soaps, and, and they still don't get sick. Mm-hmm. They seem to, to really benefit from, from this interaction. How many people are we talking about involved in this study? You know, what's the size of the population, and how many of them are actually living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle? Total is like 1,000 or 1,100, and, well, they are regarded as hunter-gatherers, but we should say that it's like 200 of them are more or less pure, they're regarded as pure hunter-gatherers. They get 90, 95% of their calories from real hunting gathering. The rest of the of the people, they are more or less westernized. And the closer to town, the more western. They have a lot of maize. They drink alcohol. So they're not really hunter-gatherers, but that makes them interesting as well because they have the same genes. Mm. They live still in the same environment, in these open huts, but they have a different diet. So it will be interesting to compare them with the more pure types. So one of the ideas about studying this group is that they're hunter-gatherers and that that's similar to what people think ancient humans used to subsist. Is there any way to tell if this group has a similar microbial profile to our ancient ancestors? Well, it's, it's of course difficult to compare to something you don't have. They seem to be the best approximates because they live where our early ancestors used to live. They still have a similar lifestyle, so in particular, like eating a lot of fibers, eating meat, and sometimes no meat, and seasonal. Those things are probably pretty universal, but for the rest, our ancestors, they moved around the world, and then that has changed their diet and their behavior. So it's not there's one type of ancestral microbiome, but this is the best we can get now. Mm-hmm. And another reason you give for looking into the diet and gut microbes in these people is because of their low incidence of some really common chronic diseases. Can this actually be linked with their gut microbes, considering all the other health stuff they have going on and their their life expectancy and that kind of thing? There's not a lot of data on chronic diseases like cancer or cardiovascular disease or other modern diseases. But as far as there are the data, it's very low. But there are other reasons for that because yeah, the average life expectancy at birth is 34. In particular, the children have a very high mortality rate because of malaria, some other unknown causes. And then there's also like accidents that can happen or hyenas can bite and then 
a wound can become infectious. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons that also play a role. But then there's also autoimmune diseases, allergies. They all happen a lot earlier. They don't seem to get them as well. The whole theory with the guts is that uh, when you have a very diverse and a very balanced microbiota, then the barrier in your gut is pretty strong and then you don't get all these bacterial products that leak into your body and that can cause chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. That inflammation is linked to a lot of diseases. It doesn't seem to be the only cause, but it's related. Right. And then there's also like when you eat a lot of fibers, you produce a lot of short-chain fatty acids and those seem to be regulatory molecules that are beneficial for a lot of different processes in the body. We have that a lot less than they do. So that could be a reason why that they have a lot less of these diseases. Mm -hmm. So as Leach is collecting these samples from the people, he's actually shipping them all over the world and starting all these different types of investigations. Can you talk about some of those different experiments or the different research that's coming out of this? At first, they go to uh, two labs in the U.S. where there was just the sequencing being done, both taxonomical and also functional metagenomics, like sequencing a lot of genes and seeing the functions and comparing that to uh, Western or American microbiota. They will also be compared to the American gut population. Like, interesting will be to see the difference between American people that have a paleo diet or uh, other extreme similar diets and then compare that to, to the Hadza. Then there will be also um, several experiments with germ-free mice those mice grown up without bacteria, and when you give them certain bacteria, you can investigate the impact and compare that with the normal microbiota, like seeing how you can manipulate the Hadza microbiota into a Western microbiota or the other way around. You're also going to look at how the microbes and the body talk, or more or less, with molecules and measuring those molecules in the gut from the microbial and the uh, human origin. Very cool. Well, you've been working on a, a slideshow for this where there's a bunch of images from your time there, from his time there. And one of the things you talk about is how they are exposed to so many microbes during the hunt. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was a, a very intriguing. When the Hadza go out hunting, they go on their own, and then they shout for the others when they have something because they shoot them with a poison arrow that doesn't kill the animal but only makes it drop down, and, and then they kill it, so they first chase it. So we were there when they tracked it, and then they started butchering the animal, and uh, they took out all the, the organs, and they just ate raw. They had a fire, and they roasted some of the things slightly. After all, they had all this blood on their hands, and um, they took the stomach, cut it open, and they took out the stomach content, which is pretty fibrous, and uh, they used it to rub their hands off. So that really exposed them to a lot of microbes, which Jeff took samples of immediately, because he just could not not do it. <laughs> is going to analyze that as well because they're already passing on these microbes because the meat is distributed. We are talking about food scandals when there's some bacteria in our hamburgers, but they just don't care and they just don't have a problem with it. Right. All right. Well, Yap, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Yap DeVriza writes about the hunter-gatherer diet in this week's issue. Weathering is a chemical and physical process in which rocks, soil, and minerals are broken down by exposure to the atmosphere, biological processes, and water. This week, I spoke with Isaac Larson about just how fast, swiftly moving mountains are weathered and what this new speed limit can tell us about global cycles of carbon and climate. It was proposed over a century ago that high erosion and weathering rates in mountains might influence global climate. And that idea was reintroduced in the early 90s, and ever since then it's been 
cited in the literature. But one thing that's been lacking are measurements of soil production and weathering rates in some of Earth's most rapidly uplifting mountains. And our work in the western southern Alps of New Zealand shows that soil production and weathering rates can be extremely high in these very active mountain ranges. And that supports the idea that mountains could potentially influence global climate. Okay. Well, so when I think about how mountains affect climate, I think of their interaction with air masses. You know, something hot can make it over a mountain range, but something cold might get stuck on one side of it. But this is much bigger than that. We're talking about the role of tectonics in climate in a much different way, right? What are some of the key players in this system and how do they work together? Right. We're talking about much different timescales than atmospheric circulation. The idea is that mountains can play a role in regulating the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over million-year timescales. And the players in this system are Earth's tectonic plates, which are moving very slowly across Earth's surface. But when they collide, Earth's rocky, rigid crust crumples, and that builds deep mountains. And the generation of that steep topography causes erosion rates to increase. And the increase in erosion rates can have potentially two influences on the global carbon cycle. One is that if there's a lot of organic carbon in that sediment and it becomes buried, that can sequester CO2 from the atmosphere. And our study doesn't address that aspect of the system, but it does address another aspect of the system, and that is that the material that's produced by erosion can then be chemically weathered. So if erosion rates increase, weathering rates also increase. And some of those elements that are weathered, such as calcium, make their way into the rivers and eventually into the oceans where they are combined with carbon dioxide to produce limestone. And that effectively sequesters carbon dioxide from the atmosphere over long timescales. And so the rise of mountains could potentially cause global cooling. Huh. And the question you're trying to answer in the work here is about the production and weathering of materials on very fast-moving mountains. Can you talk about how fast, fast-moving mountains are? So these mountains are moving fast to a geologist. So the western southern Alps in New Zealand are growing vertically at a rate of about a centimeter per year, which is extremely rapid for mountains. And so why are these processes important? It's important because it forms a link in a system that can modulate Earth's climate over long timescales. And in general, soil is the medium that supports life on Earth. So it's worthwhile to understand how slowly or or rapidly soil can form in different environments. Understanding weathering in the soils is potentially important for understanding the weathering of the entire landscape and for the amount of weathered material and weathering products that makes their way to the oceans. And so soils are potentially a key link in determining whether mountains might play a role in influencing climate. So we're not just finding out about how and when soil is generated, but also how it can impact climate on a very big scale. So I'm going to ask you about your location a little bit in more detail. The study takes place in the southern Alps of New Zealand. And besides being pretty quickly moving, is there anything else special about this location? Yes, the southern Alps are an extreme mountain range in many aspects. So in addition to the rate that they're uplifting, they're also eroding extremely rapidly at about a centimeter per year. And despite these high rates of erosion, the hill slopes still maintain a mantle of soil, which is very curious. It's a very steep landscape. Hill slope angles are about 35 degrees or so. And it is a lot of precipitation on the order of 10 meters or more than 30 feet per year. The bedrock is 
relatively weak. It's been fractured by faulting as this mountain range has been formed. And there's also extremely dense vegetation. I can tell you that it's extremely hard to move through this landscape carrying packs filled with heavy soil samples. When you put all of those things together, it's a recipe for potentially rapid rates of soil production. Okay. So what did you find when you looked at samples from the site? So we measured an isotope in these samples that we can use to infer how quickly the soils form from the underlying bedrock. And then we also measured some elements that can help us constrain how much of the total production of soil is due to chemical weathering. And what we found is that soil production rates were extremely rapid, on the order of 0.1 to 2.5 millimeters per year. So an inch of soil forming in about a dozen years. And in most places on Earth, that would take centuries. But that's not the case in the western southern Alps. And these rates are more than double the fastest rates of soil production that have been previously measured. And we also found that the weathering rates were extremely high and that the weathering rates kept on increasing as our soil production rates increased. So your finding was that there was an incredible amount of soil creation, and also that weathering was accelerated in this location as well? That's right. And what's interesting about these results is that it had been predicted before that weathering rates might be low in these types of landscapes because individual mineral grains in a really rapidly eroding terrain might not be spending very much time within the soil where they can be weathered before they're then transported downslope or uh, into the river and out of a system. But that's not what we found, we found that the material is actually very weathered in these mountains. So this is kind of a special location. We have a lot of water, a lot of vegetation, fast-moving mountains. But stepping back a bit, how can this, what you learn here, be applied to how mountains affect weathering and the weather on a long-term scale? So it's been difficult to constrain how the chemical weathering rates might respond to high rates of erosion. Do they increase? Do they decrease? And if they decrease, then mountains might not be very efficient sites for chemical weathering. And then the link that's been proposed between mountain uplift and global climate starts to break down. But our results show that chemical weathering rates continue increasing as soil production rates increase, the the highest rates that have ever been measured. And so our results at least suggest that mountains are very efficient sites for chemical weathering, which indicates that by the links between erosion and weathering, mountains do potentially play an important role in regulating the global carbon cycle over a million-year timescales. Okay. Well, Isaac Larson, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Isaac Larson and colleagues write about the weathering of fast-moving mountains in a Science Express report this week. You can find it at www.scienceexpress.org. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. So first up, we have a story on the remains of a long-lost civilization in New England. (laughs) So using lasers, researchers have uncovered something that we didn't know was there before. What did they find? Well, they found some old villages. And usually when we talk about old villages, especially villages being found in dense forests like you have in New England, we're thinking about, you know, finding lost tribes or really historic sites in South America, maybe in the rainforests of the Amazon. But this is, uh, at least for some of us, a lot closer to home in New England. And it doesn't really go that far back in time. Sometimes we're only talking here maybe about going back 
one or two hundred years. Mm-hmm. And they call it an agropolis. What's an agropolis? Well, so they call it that to really emphasize that this was from a time where farming really predominated the economy in America. We're talking about early 1800s to mid-1800s, up until the time where the Industrial Revolution really took hold, and a lot of these farmers and a lot of these communities became deserted because people were migrating towards the cities to work in factories. And so how do lasers factor into all of this? Well, there's this technique called LIDAR, which is basically a laser-guided mapping technique, and it allows people to map an entire area of land without ever picking up a shovel, without ever even having to visit it themselves. The lasers can peer through dense foliage and really see a lot of details of the land that would be missed to the naked eye. And so in this exercise, what did they actually find that made them say, this is a lost Acropolis? (laughs) Well, they looked at a few towns. One was just outside what is today New Ashford, Connecticut, and they saw this vast network of roads offset by stone walls that had come to light under this canopy of oak and spruce trees. In other places, they found some really old walls and even a dam, an old dam in one place that had been abandoned. And so they were able to make these maps without disturbing the land. What kinds of resources can this mapping actually facilitate? Well, it tells us a little bit more about what human society was like at the time, how big these villages were, but it also tells us a little bit about the ecosystem because as these people left these villages, the forest really took over. And in some cases, native trees and plants took back over the landscape. In other cases, there were invasive trees and plants that took back over the landscape. So this technique doesn't just tell us about the human history in an area, it can also tell us about the ecological history as well. So next up, we have a story on identifying smells. If asked to name how something smells in English, the agreed-upon answer will tend to reflect the source of the odor. Lemons smell lemony or like citrus. But there are a lot of other options out there. And a new study looks at how one language that seems to have a lock on smell words. Yeah, that's right. And Sarah, as English speakers, we're not great at describing smells. As you say, sometimes we just use the word the smell is coming from. A lemon smells lemony. In other cases, we just tend not to agree on what something smells like. If you have a bunch of people smell cinnamon, for example. Some people say it smells spicy, others smoky, others sweet. And this has just sort of been taken as a universal human problem. We're just not great at finding these brief, concise ways to describe smell. At least it was until the researchers in the study started looking at a tribe of nomadic hunter-gatherers named the Jahai who live in the mountain rainforest along the border between Malaysia and Thailand. So what kind of smells do they have names for? Well, this is a really odor-specific culture. They use odor words a lot in their everyday language, much more so than we do. Their religion is very odor-centric. Their medicine is very odor-centric. Even when they talk about illness and disease, they often invoke odors. For example, they have a word that's pronounced paus, which basically describes the smell of old huts, day-old food, and cabbage, suggesting not only do they have this great word for describing all these things, but that they've been able to isolate a specific odor that's probably common in all of those things that the rest of us may not be picking up on. Or a common concept that connects them. Sure. So you have this group of people who seem to have a lot more words and a lot more connection with the odor world. So how did they put this to a test? How did they compare it to other languages or cultures? Well, they had the Jahai smell 12 different odors, odors like cinnamon, turpentine, lemon, chocolate. And they had 12 native English speakers smell the same odors. And what they found were that the Jahai 
easily and consistently name the odors where the English speakers really struggled with how to describe the odors. Again, either coming up with contradictory or a variety of answers or just really having a hard time naming what they were smelling. So if someone from the tribe called something by one name, everybody else in the tribe would call it by that same name. Exactly. Whereas an English speaker would be like, oh, it's lemony. It's also sharp and astringent. Sure. But that's not specific to like what someone else might say. Right. So is this really a difference in language and training or is there an actual difference in perception? Well, one idea is just because odors are so central to this culture that they really just have developed over time all these specific words that the rest of us wouldn't use. For example, if you're in the jungle and there's a smell associated with maybe a predator like a tiger, you want an agreed-upon way to describe that odor. You want five different people describing that five different ways because you may not get out of there in time. So it may just be that odors are just really from a survival perspective, very important to this culture. Another idea is that maybe these people have evolved a stronger sense of smell than we have. There are things called odor receptors that are in our noses. They are encoded in genes in our body, and scientists know that these genes that encode these odor receptors can vary between people. So it's also possible that the Jahai just have a lot more or maybe a greater variety of odor receptors than we do. That hasn't been tested yet. Finally, we have a story on what to do in case of nuclear emergency. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was a kid, we used to have nuclear drills. We were told to look away from the windows and hide under our desks. (laughs) There's a new study that's evaluated whether that was the right thing to do. Right. And you can imagine that's probably not going to save you from a nuclear blast. What this study is a little bit more about is assuming you've already survived the blast. Your neighborhood's been leveled, but you, because you're so quick, dived into a cast iron tub Great. just before the blast hit. So you survived the blast. The question is, how are you going to survive the aftermath? Right. So do you stay there or do you move on? That's the big question. But I'm kind of surprised that this hasn't been done before, though. So what, what's new here? Well, a lot of this has been studied before. You know, how many people are going to survive if there's a blast? The gap in our knowledge has really been this intermediate distance. You know, the blast hits, you've survived. Does it make more sense to run to a shelter outside and be exposed to radiation or stay in your home or wherever you are, even though it may be an inferior shelter, but at least you don't have to go outside. Is this actually a likely scenario? Bombs these days are so powerful. I mean, could anybody who sees it actually survive? Well, with this study, this current study, which was a mathematical analysis, the researcher who led it really focused on what's called these low yield nuclear explosions. I know that sounds like those aren't very powerful, but a low-yield nuclear detonation is the same detonation that hit Nagasaki and Hiroshima during World War II. So these aren't trivial nuclear explosions, but today's warheads can inflict about a thousand times more damage than those did. But to keep things simple, and because a lot of scenarios with terrorists involve them getting their hands on these low-yield nuclear weapons rather than much higher-yield ones, that's what the researcher focused on here. Okay, and so what kind of parameters did they take into consideration in the modeling? Well, he's thinking about things like like what's the quality of your current shelter? How far away are you running distance from a better shelter? How long are you going to spend outside? Things like that. The basic conclusion was is if you've got a poor shelter, but a high-quality shelter is maybe just about five minutes away, definitely less than 30 minutes away, it makes sense for you to run like 
heck to that shelter. But if it's farther away or the shelter you're in is halfway decent, it may make more sense for you to stay put. So how far away you are from a really good shelter is is kind of the key. Right. And there's actually a very helpful diagram that summarizes this on the site in case you want to paste it on your wall or your home bomb shelter. Okay. So this actually seems pretty straightforward. Will this work for everyone? Well, the problem, as you might imagine, is there would be a lot of chaos in the aftermath of a nuclear detonation. So it's really hard to tell people what to do in that situation. Also, you can imagine it'd be probably fairly hard to get your bearings or even know where that nearest shelter is. So you sort of have to know a lot going into this to have a higher chance of surviving. But what the researcher says is that, according his calculations, if everybody were to follow his recommendations, it could save somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 lives, depending on the size of the city. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about why birds fly in V formations. Believe it or not, that was still subject to some scientific debate. Also a story about a drug that might be able to weaken some of our traumatic memories. For Science Insider, a policy blog, we've got a new item about a new budget the U.S. Congress passed this week and what it means for scientific research. Also a study about a mathematical model that may help predict cyber attacks. Finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science. This week's Science Live is about the making and the breaking of a science major, why some people go into science and why others leave. And next week's Science Live is about the commercial trade in dinosaur fossils and what impact that's having on scientific research. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the January 17, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. Thank you.